Welcome to the Civil Engineering Podcast, the podcast focused on helping civil engineering professionals succeed by exposing them to interesting civil engineering projects and successful civil engineering professionals around the world. Hosts Anthony Fasano and Christian Knudsen had successful but unconventional civil engineering careers and now focus on helping civil engineering professionals achieve their goals in work and life. Welcome to another episode of the Civil Engineering Podcast. This is your host, Anthony Fasano. And my co-host, Chris Knutson, is not with me today. He is out and about trying to find project sites that we can do our first on-site CEP episode. So pretty excited about that. Hopefully within the next few episodes, I'll be kicking it over to Chris somewhere, whether it's in the US or beyond. And he'll be hopefully interviewing a project manager or just checking out a really interesting project right there on site. Today's episode is going to be definitely an interesting one. I'll be briefly discussing the Great Wall of China in our Civil Engineering Project of the Week segment, which is just a phenomenal project um, with the magnitude of it and the size of it. I think you'll appreciate that as a civil engineer. And then we'll jump into the Civil Engineering Conversation segment of the show where I'll be interviewing Paul Angwang, a civil engineer and past ITE international president. I'm thrilled to have the opportunity to talk with Paul. And we're going to talk about professional ethics, mentoring, and he's also going to give 10 specific items to help you succeed as a civil engineer. And of course, as usual, at the end of every one of these episodes, we plan to ask what we call the civil engineering career elevator advice, which is essentially one critical piece of advice that our guest would give to a civil engineer if he or she were to meet a civil engineer in an elevator and had about 30 seconds to give career advice. The show notes for the show from today will be at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Look for episode number three. And with that, let's waste no time. Let's jump right into the civil engineering Project of the Week segment. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. All right, so in this segment, we typically like to discuss an interesting civil engineering project, either past, present, or future. And actually, we want you to submit your project to the show. That's the point of this uh, Project of the Week segment. If you go to civilengineeringpodcast.com, just click on the red button towards the top that says submit your project. And you can fill out a form. You're more than welcome to indicate that you want to come on the show as well. You can come on the show with us and talk about the project. We want to give uh, everyone an opportunity to get their project onto the show. So today's project that I'm going to talk about is certainly a fascinating one. It is the Great Wall of China. And we chose this project just because of the sheer magnitude of it. The, the Great Wall of China extends for about 5,500 miles, a little bit under 9,000 kilometers. And if you want to put a bit of a reference point on that, that's essentially the width of the United States from East Coast to West Coast times two. So it's double the width of the U.S. to give you an idea of, of how long the actual structure is. And it runs pretty much from the northeastern to the north central China. It includes trenches and mountains and wall sections. The main series of the wall stretches from Shanghai Guan in the east to Lop Lake in the west, which roughly outlines the southern border of Inner Mongolia. The amazing thing about this project, again, is the size of it. It's, it's one of the largest construction projects that's ever been completed. It goes across mountains, across winding 
areas around Beijing. I mean, if you think about the typical civil engineering project that you're working on, you think about the problems that you might be having, like a little bit of water on the site or, you know, you got some clay soils. Well, you can imagine the different challenges that they had in constructing this project. It's actually constructed of masonry rocks. There's packed earth in sections. The thickness of the wall ranges from about four to nine meters, which is 15 to 30 feet roughly, and is as high as almost eight meters or 25 feet in some of the tallest sections. I mean, again, just phenomenal. A 20, imagine a 25-foot wall that could be potentially 30 foot across. And the wall was renovated constantly. And during the Ming Dynasty, over a period of 200 years, it was a 200-year renovation where they added towers so that they can put cannons in the towers and, and use it as defense. Can you imagine a 200-year renovation? Again, we're talking about magnitude and scope that's just unthinkable as a civil engineer. I mean, I can't even fathom it really from the projects that I've worked on. Project budget... We did a lot of research on this and it's pretty much impossible to find a budget for the Great Wall of China because it's been done over such a long period of time and had so many different on and off start to construction. However, we did find some estimates and we'll reference this information on the show notes of approximately $360 billion. That's billion with a B, $360 billion. Was the project over or under budget? That, again, we can't tell, um, probably because at the time there maybe wasn't <laughs> such emphasis put on a budget. And also, again, it was stretched out over so many years and there was different periods of, of renovation. The first Great Wall of China was finished during the, the reign of the first emperor of China, which was back in around 200 BC. But then the most recent portion of the Great Wall, you know, the one that we know, the one that we see pictures of, when you think of this structure, was finished towards the end of the Ming Dynasty around 1644, and that was the 200-year renovation that happened. Many people consider the Great Wall of China pretty much the biggest object that's ever been constructed by human beings, which is awesome. The Great Wall began as a series of actually smaller walls that weren't even connected to each other. And these were the walls that I talked about built way back in B.C., as time went on, many of the emperors connected the walls together, and essentially the reason for this was protection, to keep other tribes out, the Huns, the Mongols. There's thousands and thousands of soldiers that guarded the wall at various times. In some cases, they even say that there was over a million Chinese soldiers around the Great Wall. And just imagine that a large portion of the wall is made of dirt and mud and stone and brick kind of just put together. As I mentioned, the thickness before in some areas is up to 30 feet. There's actually roads that they had on top of the walls to transport military supplies. There's tower towers every few hundred meters so that they can serve as watch posts, even send information back and forth. Over time, the wall has been damaged by weather, by earthquakes, by war. The government's even destroyed parts of it during other construction process. It's estimated that approximately 30% of the Great Wall of China is in, is in fairly good condition at this point. And in fact, back in the early 2000s, the Chinese government really started to take action to try to protect the Great Wall. And it's now considered a World Heritage Site. 
uh, as a symbol of China, and it's a huge tourist attraction. Huge. The, the the most popular portion of the wall is near Beijing, which is visited by over six million tourists every year. When you talk about any special design features or challenges, again, a lot of this information happened so long ago, so we didn't get a lot of specifics, but it was the terrain from what we can tell in our research that really caused the biggest problem, hence the winding of the wall and the different turns of the wall. As far as the design of the wall goes, there's pretty much three sections, which I kind of mentioned before. There's walls, right, where there's built structures. There's passes, where there was whether a major trade route, and they needed to build a pass and incorporate a pass into the wall to allow people through. The passes typically had access ramps and ladders that they used for getting horses, merchants, and even you know soldiers across both sides. Then there was the signal towers, which again was for protection. They would either signal using sounds to the people on the inside of the wall that there was intruders coming, or they would use it to fire ammunition on the incoming tribe that was attacking. As far as the benefits to society of the Great Wall, I mean, I think the benefit is obvious. At the time that it was built, the benefit was for safety. It was a way to protect the, their civilization. And, and I'm, that's obviously a huge benefit. And I would say at this point in time now, the benefits to society are, it serves as a wonderful tourism spot, which is a benefit for visitors, of course. I think it's also obviously a huge benefit for the country as far as a, a financial revenue from tourists. So that's our civil engineering project of the week. Take a look at some pictures online. You can Google the Great Wall of China. It's just a phenomenal structure and it's kind of puts things in perspective when we think about the the civil engineering, some of the civil engineering projects that we might work on and some of the challenges that we see in it. Just imagine the challenges that you know, project managers or engineers or laborers had encountered on the Great Wall of China. Civil Engineering Podcast. Civil Engineering Podcast. We are engineers who design and plan for the public benefit. And it's incumbent on us to make sure that we do everything as efficiently and as accurately as possible. If we stray from that, that really endangers the public. And that's why we need to always be cognizant of, of doing the right thing and doing it accurately. You are serving the public. Everything that you do, probably, depending on the exact type of engineering you do, can affect a lot of citizens in the public. So every decision that you make has a big impact, and you need to be aware of that. To be a better speaker, you really have to believe what you're talking about. If you're passionate about it, your message will be heard and felt that way. All right, now it's time for this week's civil engineering conversation where we talk with a civil engineering professional who has had success in his or her field, striving towards a specific goal and really just overall in their career. And today's guest, I'm really excited to have Paul Engwong with me. And I'm going to introduce Paul here. And it's he's got quite an introduction because he's had a very successful career in the engineering world. And I'll read through some of his intro here. And we'll also post everything on the show notes for this show. And just so you know, the show notes are a place that you can go where you can find all the information we talk about here on the show summarized for you. And you can find everything at civilengineeringpodcast.com. 
So Paul Engwong is a professional engineer and principal in the Newark office of VHB, a premier 1,000-person planning, engineering, and environmental services firm. Prior to his present position, Paul co-founded his firm Engwong Taubin Associates and served as its president for over 23 years. He served as the transportation department head for the RBA group and was a project manager for Edwards and Kelsey earlier in his career. Paul received both his bachelor and master's degrees from NJIT. He is a licensed professional engineer in New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, and Florida. Paul is also former international president of the Institute of Transportation Engineers and former president of the International Chinese Transportation Professionals Association's Northeastern Chapter. He is a member of the Newark Regional Business Partnerships Transportation Council and has served on numerous other committees and councils in the transportation industry. Paul also has received several awards, um, especially from the ITE, and we'll list all those in the show notes. And he is also a frequent speaker and presenter on the topics of career growth and development and recently presented ethics and leadership development and professional ethics, effective communication skills and mentoring for the Institute of Transportation Engineers. And and I'm thrilled to have Paul with me. Paul, welcome to the show. Thank you so much, Anthony. I'm glad to be here. And what we're going to do today is I asked Paul to focus on a few topics because obviously he's seen many things over his career. We're going to focus on three main topics here today. The first one's going to be professional ethics and mentoring. The second one's going to be develop, developing effective communication skills, which is obviously critical in the world of engineering. And then lastly, we'll close it out and Paul will give you 10 things to remember as an engineer that will be helpful for you as you go through your career. And I think that they apply in life as well. All right. So Paul, again, it's, it's a pleasure to have you and we're going to jump right in here and start talking a little bit about ethics, which I know is a, a very interesting topic that uh, engineers spend a lot of time talking about. Let's just start, Paul, maybe by giving kind of your definition or your thoughts on what ethics actually means to you. Well, thank you, Anthony. You know, ethics and, and mentoring, actually, the, the two really go hand in hand. And, and I've been fortunate in having mentors who helped me understand just how crucial ethics is and by their actions, how important mentoring is. So first, I usually ask, what is ethics and what does it mean to you? Well, ethics, a definition of ethics is it's a system or code of morals of a per- particular person, religion, or group. Ethics can also be defined as honesty and integrity. Another definition is ethics is a tough decision with a payout in the long term. And that's a quote from a a noted speaker and writer, uh, Frank Beccaro. All right, Paul, so we're going to talk about ethics and mentoring is the first topic that we're going to get into here. And everyone gets, you know, the typical ethics course in, in college, or at least a lot of engineers do. But what if I'm an engineer out there and I'm practicing and... Let's say, for example, you were my manager and I came up to you and I said, you know, Paul, a couple of people had mentioned to me this idea of ethics and I really have no idea what it means. Um, you know, can you kind of explain to me like what ethics is and how, how I need to be, why I need to be aware of it as an engineer? Sure. Ethics is something that talks about honesty and integrity. Many of us were, were taught what ethics was or is when we were younger, and many of us follow that, but sometimes we wander from, from those golden rules. So why is it important? We are engineers who design and plan 
for the public uh, benefit. And it's incumbent on us to make sure that we do everything as efficient, efficiently and as accurately as possible. If we stray from that, that really endangers the public. And, and that's why we need to always be cognizant of, of doing the right thing and doing it accurately. And, and what happens, I know as an engineer at times, you know, you can get a lot of pressure from people. Um, you could be on big projects, big budgets, and there's pressure to do things, to get things done quickly. And, you know, how do I, how do I fend off the stress or the pressure so that I stay aware of, you know, and make these ethical decisions? I mean, is there any advice that you can give me that in these kind of times of pressure, um, you know, what I can do as, as an engineer? I think you need to keep first and foremost in your mind what your responsibility is. And yes, there are pressures in, in everyday life. And what I do is if there's a difficult situation where I'm not sure whether I should do something or not, I use what I call the New York Times rule. And that is, let's assume that you do what you're contemplating and then you see it appear on the front page of the New York Times the next day. How do you feel about it? If you feel awkward about it, you shouldn't do it. But if you feel okay, then it's probably okay. Because what that does is it exposes your actions to everyone. And that normally will tell you which way to, to go. Excellent. And I would assume, Paul, because I know the topic that we kind of wanted to focus on together was ethics and mentoring. So I would assume that having a mentor is going to be a very big help in maintaining your ethical awareness and, and making the right decisions. Is that a good, uh, a good I guess, assessment? It is. Uh, I have many mentors, and all of us actually probably have many good mentors. Uh, as a child, your parents mentor you to do the right things, your teachers, your siblings, your, your friends. You know, in my adult life, I've met so many wonderful people who I consider my mentors. And I think it's great to kind of reconnect with those folks every so often because that will reinforce your philosophy on how you should do things. And as such, you know how important it is to be mentored, so you should mentor people as well. Okay, excellent. And just to kind of summarize this first topic that we're discussing, if you're a younger civil engineer out there listening to the show, you may not have encountered this idea of ethics yet, or you may not have been pressured or had to make kind of a really a, a tough decision where you had to think about ethics. But you know, I wanted to get this topic on the show because I want to make you aware that, you know, you are, like Paul said, you are serving the public. You are, everything that you do, probably, depending on the exact type of engineering you do, can affect a lot of citizens in the public. So every decision that you make has a big impact and you need to be aware of that. And if you're an experienced civil engineer, a manager, executive, I think Paul's made it clear here as well that this information needs to be communicated to your staff um, to your designers so they, they understand what ethics is. You know, we can't just assume that what they've learned in school is enough. We need to kind of mentor them and give them the proper information so that they can be aware 
um, of what ethics is and make ethical decisions. So I think that hopefully that gives everyone a pretty good picture of what ethics is and how a mentor can really help you to remain ethical in your design as an engineer. So with that, let's jump into the next topic, which is going to be developing effective communication skills. And this is one that I'm a big proponent for. I do a lot of work with engineers focusing on communication because it is a critical skill. And what I laugh at sometimes is when I ask a young engineer why you became an engineer and they say to me, well, I became an engineer because I don't really like writing or speaking. And I end up laughing at them because those are probably two of the most important things that we have to do, especially as civil engineers. So, Paul, why don't you talk to us a little bit in general about the importance of communication as an engineer? Uh, You're absolutely right, Anthony. You know, years and years ago, uh, the picture of an engineer was someone who had his or her head down designing a bridge or a building and really not having to communicate uh, with the public or, or with their clients very much. It was very technical and kind of one of those things that the picture is worth a thousand words. But today in our field, communications is everything. And our younger professionals today, they communicate very differently uh, with Facebook and tweets and blogs. But what I'm talking about is the, the classical development uh, communication skills the writing, the speaking, and the listening skills that are so, so important today in order to have your audience understand what you're saying and why you're saying it. So let's start with the writing skills. You know, engineers have been notoriously poor writers in the past, and um, it's because we're so technical and we're afraid to, to, to do this kind of communications, as you mentioned. Years ago, we hired a writing specialist for our staff at Enguang Taub, and she taught a lot of things. But the one thing I'll always remember is a thing called the Reno Method, R-E-N-O. R stands for who's the reader. You need to write like you're speaking to the reader. You have to understand what their understanding is of the subject matter using the words that they understand and Staying away from all the acronyms that's so prevalent in our uh, industry. The E in Reno is effectiveness. What effect do you want? Do you want to surprise them? Do you want to gradually bring it up to a crescendo? And so this lady, uh, Leslie Robbins, said something about how we engineers write. When we do a traffic impact study or an EIS, it's a very methodic, kind of long process that you go from data collection to analysis to design, etc. She said, I don't want to read all this. Just tell me the answer. Does it work or doesn't it? And that's why I think we've come to the point where now most of our reports have an executive summary right. that gives you that answer right up front. Excellent. That's an excellent point. Think about your audience before you start writing. I know that, you know, I remember doing a lot of residential commercial design. Sometimes you're you're writing for the uh, a municipal engineer that's going to review your report. Sometimes you're writing for a citizens organization that's going to review your report and come to a meeting, a public meeting. So I think that that's a wonderful, wonderful piece of advice. And if you're out there listening, really don't just dive into a report and start writing it in a technical manner, thinking that only someone with the same knowledge or perspective as you 
um, is going to be reading that report. All right, what else you got, Paul, on writing? How else can we improve our as a writer? Okay, so the N in Reno is the necessary information. Before you even start writing, think about all the necessary information that you need and have that at your fingertips. Because once you start writing, you start gain, gaining momentum. And if you have to stop because you don't have a piece of information, you're going to lose that train of thought. So make sure you have all the necessary information in front of you. The O in Reno is the order in which you want to present the, the uh, topic. And that's going to change depending on your, your reader, uh, whether it's, as I said earlier, do you need the answer up front, do you want to build it up to a crescendo, or, or whatever. So, so those are the four letters that she, she taught us one, one uh, session and kind of stuck with me. So that, that's my, my uh, advice. Now, I also advise folks to read a lot. Uh, uh, read different things. Read novels for enjoyment. Read newspapers for uh, terse information. Uh, not just the technical text that we engineers are so accustomed to. Excellent. All right. So let me summarize that. That was a great acronym to use, uh, a great process. Reno, when you're writing your next report, R stands for the reader, understand who the audience is and use the appropriate words and phrases. E stands for effect. What effect do you want to get? Do you want to inform someone? Do you want to surprise someone? N is for necessary information. Make sure you have all the necessary information you need before you start writing, especially with some of these projects that are tight on budget. You don't want to be jumping in and out of a project. And the O is what is the order that you want to present, right? What's that order so that you're logically presenting something which is going to have an impact in the way that it's received? And then I like that tip at the end, Paul, to read um, as much as you can in different genres of, of whether it's fiction, nonfiction, that'll also help you by recognizing other people's writing styles. All right, so I think we got the writing covered. Let's talk a little bit about speaking now, Paul. We know that speaking is something that a lot of, not just engineers, but you know, a lot of people in general have a lot of fear of speaking in front of people, presenting in front of people. In my opinion, presenting in front of people in a clear manner can make or break your career as an engineer. So talk to us a little bit about uh, presentations. I'm sure that as the president, the international president of IT, you had to get up in front of the room many times and you probably have a bunch of tips on how people can improve on that. I certainly did, Anthony, and, and it was a great experience, quite frankly. Well, so many of us, as you mentioned, we get nervous when we address an audience and, and that's human nature. And you'll, you'll hear from many folks, uh, TV celebrities who still get nervous. But the thing here is you need to practice by giving short presentations. And here at VHB, we give lunchtime uh, presentations. And, and I think the more you present, the better you'll get, the more comfortable you'll feel. Um, the, the one thing that, that actually helps me a lot is breathing a certain way. You need to take a breath. Oftentimes, we'll be speaking and we just rattle off all these things we want to get get that information out as quickly as possible. But this is going to tie into the listening part. But when you speak, you need to speak in a, in a pace that is comfortable for you to, to uh, project, but also a comfortable uh, pace for the listener to kind of absorb what you're saying. One of the things that uh, I talk about is a thing called pause and effect. Not cause and effect, but pause and effect. 
sometimes when you pause, it gives a person a second to kind of absorb what you're saying. Sometimes if it's really important, you might want to repeat it. So these are some, some tips that, that can help you kind of make a point or emphasize a point. Excellent. And is there any books or videos or courses or anything you could recommend to an engineer out there who wants to become a better speaker? Well, th- well there is a wonderful book uh, that I, that I uh, have. It's called Speaking from the Heart by Steve Adubato. Steve, uh, I believe, was a senator in New Jersey. He's got a TV show uh, for uh, New Jersey News, and it, it's just just a wonderful book. It's got all kinds of wonderful ideas and how to be a better speaker. One of, one of the things that I'll, I'll remember from that is to be a better speaker, you really have to believe what you're talking about. If you're passionate about it, your message will be heard and felt that way. So you also have to really believe what you're talking about. You really have to have buy-in so that when you do speak about it, it comes across very authentic. Hmm. That's awesome. That's awesome advice. And, and I actually had the pleasure of meeting Steve in the past, and I've read his other book called Make the Connection. So we will we will link to both of those books. We'll put them in the show notes for you at civilengineeringpodcast.com, and this is going to be episode three. So look for that. All right, Paul, before we move on to the 10 tips that you have, is there any other points that you want to talk about in regards to speaking or improving your speaking skills? Well, actually, the, the third skill is the listening skills. And so we have reading, or we have writing, we have speaking, and then listening skills, which I think it's the hardest skill to master. How do you listen? I mean, how many times have you been in a conversation and you're speaking to someone, and before you even finish speaking, the other person is answering something or responding. Um, and, and that happens more, more often than, than not. And I think what happens there is the person really isn't listening. They, they've gotten the gist, but they want to tell you their opinion without, without much more thought. So I think it's important for us to listen. We have to have empathy. We have to kind of put ourselves in the shoes of the speaker to, to understand what they're talking about and why they're saying those things. So one of the things I do when, when someone speaks is really listen intently. And then I fill in the blanks. I'll have a bunch of questions in my, in my head. And you can make up your own questions. But what is this person saying? Why is he saying it? Why is it important to me? How should I respond? You know, these are the, the, the kind of things that maybe will let you kind of settle in a little bit and be able to kind of comprehend what the meaning is of the words the person is saying. And then be able to respond accordingly. So there's a great story I have with uh, a friend of mine from Canada. His name is Russell Brownlee. And you know how Canadians talk, eh? <laughs> and I said to him, I said, Russell, why do you guys do that? Why do you say, hey? He said, well... We do that all the time because once we finish talking, we say, hey, that means we're finished and now it's your turn to talk. But you Americans, you, you never say, hey, and we just stand there patiently waiting to talk. So it, it, it's kind of like it's kind of like a CB radio transmission where you finish talking and you say Roger or something. Yeah. So <laughs> out. But, but here it was, something that. Canadians do all the time, and it's recognized as a way of saying, I'm finished, now you can talk. 
So I think we have we have an opportunity to, to learn from that. So I, I think it's so important for us to learn how to listen carefully, and, and it'll help us kind of understand the question better, not jump to a, an answer, and be able to be uh, more, more meaningful in terms of response. Yeah, that's very interesting. And actually, when I was in executive coaching school, we did a lot of one-on-one interactions. And what they taught us was this little trick called listen for the silence, which was very difficult to do the first few times I tried it. But if you're in a conversation with someone, wait until you hear silence for a second before you speak. And if you try this for like the first two or three days, it's, it's virtually like impossible to do it. But I think you can develop a habit like anything else, and it really does improve the quality of your of your conversation. So, that that's a good one. I'm going to remember that. All right, Paul. Let's jump into the next topic here. You have ten things to remember as an engineer. I mean, really, probably apply to engineers of all ages, both professionally and also will affect your personal life as well. So, let's run through these ten kind of tips or things to remember, and then we'll close out with a few more questions. Why don't you go through them? Okay. Well, I guess this started off with maybe four things to remember, and then it grew to six, and now to ten, and and it continues to evolve as as I, I learn things. So the first thing I, I have here is learn as much as you can, and I tell all my my folks, don't be afraid to ask questions, and I emphasize that this is your opportunity to learn your craft. So take advantage of the time and build a strong foundation of knowledge. Excellent. What's number two? Number two is do your homework and really get into the subject matter. You know, take time and effort in really understanding the tools of your trade. I have staff who many years ago will look at a software program, and instead of simply inputting the data into the software and it pops out an answer, they really delve into the to the uh, program and look at the equations and actually challenge the developer, who at the time was McTrans, and said, you know, we don't think this is correct. And as it turns out, there would be patches for these, for these software tools to adjust for these things. And every time I saw McTrans at a conference, they would literally thank me because my staff was so deeply involved into, into the subject matter. So really delve into it. You really need to know what it is it's doing in order to realize whether those answers that come out are reasonable or not. Excellent. And now I'll just add something there. One of my managers that I had, um, Andrew Featherston, I'm actually going to try to have him on the show at some point in the future. He, I remember he made me do grading, land grading by hand. He gave me a book. He had me read it and I did a lot of exercises and sure I could jump into AutoCAD and just like grade a site, put the cut fill analysis on. But because he had me do that, not only did I really understand the, the theory of the land grading and what went into it, but I actually enjoyed it a lot more because I was able to sit down and kind of work on it. And then I know that with budgets and everything, everyone's under the gun and sometimes you want to just pop it into the computer and run with it. But I think it's important to try to uh, take the time, like Paul's saying, and understand the theory behind a lot of the the different design techniques that you're doing because it's just going to help you overall to be a better engineer and, and also to be able to talk on these topics because you're going to be more confident in them. All right, number three, Paul. Well, number three is take ownership of an assignment or of a project. What that means is you have to embrace it and understand that this is my work 
It reflects my efforts and my skills. It's not just a job or an assignment. It's more personal than that. In some industries, uh, I, I think it's in the car industry, some teams will actually sign on the product that they were part of the team that produced this widget. And that shows ownership. It says, I care about this. I put my heart and soul into this. And then that becomes a better product. Great point. I think that the projects that end up running not as smoothly or failing are the projects that don't have a defined point person or a defined leader because no one's in control and no one takes ownership of it. So I think that that's a wonderful point. All right, number four. Number four is to be accountable and make sure that the product you produce is something you can be proud of. Does this meet or exceed the expectation of the client? If you take that kind of attitude from the very beginning, it's going to help you strive for that kind of perfection. Excellent. Excellent. Again, I think a lot of times today we're trying to crank a design out and you're trying to get it out the office. Um, and sometimes you don't think about, you know, the end result and the person who's going to be, um, you know, not just the client per se that maybe owns a property, but what about the user, the end user and so on and so forth. All right. Number five. Well, that really uh, follows up with number four and that says, Remember, one size does not fit all. Solutions really need to be tailored to each project. It may be the same topic, but the conditions may be different. So don't think that it's, you know, type A is all this type or type B is all that type. You need to really understand the needs of each project and really fit the solution to that that's that project. Yeah. It's not going to be a lot of things in the civil engineering world. They're not going to be cookie cutter where you could take one site and drop it into another site. It just doesn't work that way. So um, great point. All right. Number six. Well, six and seven really go together. Six is Murphy's law. I think everyone knows that law. <laughs> that is anything that can go wrong will go wrong. Uh, I, I remember presenting to uh, some some folks some time ago and uh, uh, I got a phone call from uh, students from UMass who called me and they said, you know, number six, well, we're experiencing it now as we're trying to get home and we're missing every connection. <laughs> so <laughs> anything can that can go wrong will go wrong. And then seven is Murphy was an optimist. So <laughs> take that. And, and so, so really the, the point here is you really need to give yourself extra time and extra budget. So whatever your schedule is, set your personal schedule a day earlier. So you can avert Murphy's law and leave yourself some um, some time for 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 any unforeseen uh, delays, as well as give yourself a little more budget too. So if you don't need it, if you don't need that extra budget, then try to make your product even better. Excellent point. Yeah, when I rewrote my book, Engineer Your Own Success, the first thing the editor said to me was, Anthony, come up with a date when you think you can finish the book and just add six to nine months to it. <laughs> so so uh, I think it's the same idea there. All right, number eight. Number eight is don't rest on your laurels. You need to prove yourself every day. It's great that you did something great yesterday, but what are you going to do great today? So make it a habit to perform at your level best, and then this will just come naturally. Yeah, that's a great point. And I know I've worked with a lot of great civil engineering managers. And I think the ones that I've seen to be successful are the ones that have a really successful project. 
and then start the next one saying, okay, how can I improve, you know, what I did on the last project? Meanwhile, the last project was super successful. And I think the ones that don't have as much success are the ones that say, okay, we did great on that project. Now we can kind of step off the gas a little bit and, and cruise a little bit. So um, I think that that's a great point. I think that's something to remember is that no matter how good you do, um, you certainly want to, you know, do good, congratulate yourself, your team, but then look for, always look for ways to improve. So I like that one a lot. All right. What's number nine, Paul? Number nine is something that I've, I've learned uh, years ago, and that is you need to maintain a balance in your life. What does that mean? Well, what I mean by that is what do you do for you? What do you do that satisfies you, and how often do you do it? So many times I meet folks in our industry, and we are just – working like crazy, we've got activities at home, we've got activities with friends, so we're, we're, we're trying to please everybody. But I believe that you need to please yourself as well. So, Anthony, I'll ask you, what do you do for you, Anthony? Not, not for anyone else, but what do you do frequently for you that you get enjoyment out of? Sure. So a couple of things that I do, and I do think this is extremely important, and one of the things that I try to do through everything I do on the engineering career coach site is to help engineers succeed in work and life together because I think that that's important. So I do do certain things for myself. I do a lot of reading. I try to do a lot of fictional reading in the evenings, kind of helps me relax a bit. Um, my wife and I picked up um, ballroom dancing a little over a year ago. I get, so I get to do a lot of that, which is actually quite a bit of a mental and physical workout at the same time as having some leisure, um, which is which is fun. And then I just try to do other things like I started a garden with my kids, you know, things that you could do to be outside and just to take out some of the stress. I mean, I think for me, I kind of learned that, listen, you could work as much as you want to work, but at the end of the day, I mean, if you burn yourself out, what's the point of it? So that, that is excellent, Anthony. I will tell you that more often than not, folks will say, gee, I used to do this or I used to do that, but I don't have time anymore. And it's so important to make that time because that will maintain your self-balance. Yeah, 100%. I agree. And I, believe me, I could probably be doing a million other things. But like you said, you got to carve out the time and make sure that it's if it's important to you, um, you have to make it uh, important. All right, Paul, what's, uh, what's our last one? What's number 10? Number 10, it's the last but not least, it refers back to our first topic, and that is always maintain your professional ethics. Always keep that in the forefront of your mind. Excellent, excellent. All right, so Paul has given us quite a bit of information here in this segment of the show. I'm just going to close out here, Paul, with a couple quick questions that I like to ask every guest. So my first question is, are there any specific rituals that you practice every day? For example, do you have a specific morning routine or a lunchtime routine or something that you do consistently on a daily basis? In fact, I do. Um, I, I take the train to work every morning. And during that train ride, I, I take out my phone and I check all my emails. Uh, and they can be numerous just overnight. Uh, it's amazing these days. And then I check that against my calendar so that I can prioritize some of those things. By the time I get into to the office, I'm ready to roll on a number of these things that need to be addressed. Excellent. So basically, you use that time on the train to set yourself up to have a good day. So when you get in, you're kind of clear on what your important tasks are for the day. Is that? Absolutely right. Yep. Okay. Wow. That, that's, that's great. All right. And then lastly, 
I'll ask you this question. I know we already talked about one book, but maybe there's another one. What is one book that you recommend to engineers regularly or just one book that you have found to be extremely helpful in your professional and or personal development? You mentioned Speaking from the Heart by Steve Adubato. Is there any other ones you might want to mention? You know, there are other books. that One that I thought that was very interesting, uh, it was called Traffic. It came out a few years ago as I'm a traffic engineer and you know there there could be some controversy in that but I just thought it was interesting because it really related to the work we do as as transportation engineers uh so any of the folks out there listening who are interested in traffic engineering I, I thought that was a very enjoyable book okay great all right and one last thing that I do at the end with each guest is to ask for what I call civil engineering career elevator advice. So we went through a lot of information here. We went through these 10 these 10 strategies or tips. We talked about ethics, mentoring, communication. If you were to get into an elevator with a civil engineer and you had about 20 to 30 seconds and you had to give them some advice to kind of build their career off of, you know, and it could be someone at varying experience levels, what would be some of the things that you would say in those 20 or 30 seconds? That's that's a really a good one, and and it'll show my my bias towards um, the Institute of Transportation Engineers. The institute is a professional society of transportation engineers, and of course, you learn a lot of technical things, and you and you hear a lot of uh, experts talk about things, and that's great. You know, you need to continually uh, learn your art. However, the other advantage of of the institute is. You meet the people and you and you start building a network of folks, uh, either locally or nationally or internationally, depending on on the meetings you go to. So I think it's really important for uh, those of us in in the uh, engineering field that there's there's technical advancement that that you need to constantly learn about state of the art, but there's also a kind of social and networking side of it because all these folks speak your language, understand what you're talking about, and you can really gain a lot of uh, great information one-on-one with with, uh, other members. Excellent. All right. So the idea there is networking, build your network. I don't, you know, I I agree a hundred percent. I don't care if you're an engineering student, you're, you know, a young engineer, you're an experienced engineer. I think you should continue to build your network because your network's going to yield those opportunities for you. And they're also going to make your career enjoyable. So Paul, thank you so much for spending the time here with us today. You gave us a lot of great information. And for those of you out there, please remember that uh, you'll find the show notes at civilengineeringpodcast.com. Paul, it was a pleasure. I really appreciate it. Thank you very much, Anthony. It was my pleasure. All right. And as we close out the show, I just want to remind you that you can visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com. And we've developed this free three-part video series that covers topics including how to use LinkedIn effectively, how to communicate clearly, and become a powerful leader as an engineer. And the videos are actually customized to your experience level, so you'll be able to select the experience engineer that you are. Um, And again, you can pick those up at engineeringcareercoach.com. Until next week, I wish you all the best in your civil engineering endeavors. Thank you for listening to the Civil Engineering Podcast. 
Be sure to visit civilengineeringpodcast.com, where you can listen to past episodes and also submit your project to be featured on the show. We also invite you to visit our main website at engineeringcareercoach.com and download a free three-part video series created specifically for engineers to help you best utilize LinkedIn for networking, improve your communication and speaking skills, and also help to develop your leadership abilities. Now is the time to engineer your own success. Thank you.